there is a way in which the combination of things that make you up is a combination that doesn't exist anywhere else. You know, that it's a really unique combination. And, and then if you, when, when by analogy, you're a combination of experiences um, that don't exist anywhere else. Addiction is a complicated disease. It affects every aspect of the addict's life and creates physical, psychological, spiritual, and mental problems. Where does addiction come from? Does it originate in the person, or is it the result of external problems and pressures? I talked with two doctors of psychology to learn more about how addiction really works, from the outside in. Dr. David Gatta holds a doctorate in clinical psychology and has been in private practice since 2013. He has offices in Oakland and San Francisco and works with people who have complex psychological histories, including addiction and alcoholism. Dr. Gatta says there's more to addiction than just getting rid of the problematic substance, and the cure, if there is one, isn't as simple as a pill or prescription. In modern treatment, what what would you do if somebody, you know, if a patient, a new patient approached you and said, you know, I I think I'm a I think I'm an addict, I think I'm an alcoholic, what would you do to start helping them with that recovery process? Well, yeah, um, there's a lot there. I mean, I think that the 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 first thing that I do as a as a as a psychologist is to really understand the person's context. Um, because no, no symptom, no, no pathology uh, emerges in a vacuum. Um, context really, really matters. So just like no two people struggling with depression are the same, no two people struggling with, with, uh, with addiction are the same. You know, that, um, I very much do agree with the, the fact that um, addiction is not a character flaw, just like depression is not a character flaw. But I think we have to be careful because... Um, there's a tendency now to kind of blame the body, whereas in the past the, 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 the tendency was to sort of blame the person's character. Um, so um, I say that because, you know, you can, you can have two people growing up in the same household with the same parents and the same sort of set of conditions, um, but, but uh, one sibling, for example, might develop addiction while, while the other person doesn't. And that, you know, that's just a sort of basic um, idea, but I think it does point to something about um, who uh, who has particular vulnerabilities in a particular area and who doesn't. So mm-hmm. just I just wanted to sort of, you know, make make that clear that it's not all biology um, all the time. You know, certainly there are genetic predispositions for things, but we really have to understand someone's social situation and their relational history. So what kind of relationships have they had, um, I, which I think is a huge part of why someone develops um, develops an addiction or a proclivity towards, towards use. Um, so I just wanted to put that out there. But when somebody comes to me struggling um, with, with uh, addiction, um, I really want to understand their history in context before we make um, specific steps. That's really interesting. 
That's really interesting. Yeah, I feel like there's there's been a movement more towards like holistic treatment. There's a real emphasis mm-hmm. on self-care, I think, that wasn't mm-hmm. necessarily there before. So I feel like people are moving towards that. But that's not a new idea, um, is it? Mm-hmm. I mean, Carl, Carl Jung, who you've studied, um, you know, did work with addicts and, and is famous mm-hmm. in, in the Alcoholics Anonymous community for working mm-hmm. with some of the, the sort of progenitors of AA and, you know, mm-hmm. approaching, I think that he's the one, and I may be misquoting, but I think that he's the one who who uh, described alcoholism as a spiritual malady, you know, as, right. as a, an ailment with a spiritual component. So do you, do you bring any of that into your practice? Um, you know, so I'm, I'm not a union, um, so I don't really, um, I don't really work. I don't really think that way. Um, I am, you know, uh, a contemporary psychoanalytic um, practitioner. So I, I, I'm coming from a place more of um, relationship and attachment. So I'm looking to hear about people's histories and about and where where in their lives they've had what we would call disrupted or disordered attachment. I mean, failed or toxic relationships. Um, are you know very much a focus of me of of, of my work, um, and also you know this the you know I think there's a really deep seated depressive component to what motivates um, an addictive process. I mean I think that when when we use anything to excess, we're trying to medicate something that we don't know how to how to deal with. Um, I think of it more as sort of like an like an absence inside the self that needs to be filled. Um, and pe- people use all kinds of things to try to fill that. Um, so that's really where I'm coming from. The other thing I would say is that um, when treating addiction, I really believe that you need to, um, from a practitioner's perspective, that it mean, it needs to be um, uh, done, done in a team or in a kind of interdisciplinary way, depending on how severe um, the struggle is, but even if even if it's just substance abuse and hasn't risen to the level of uh, addiction, what I end up doing is I'll see patients um, multiple times a week, and, and I have two um, that I work with currently um, who kind of fall into this category, and so we spend one session in the early part of the week, you know, talking about whatever's on their mind and exploring. In a, in a very deep way, uh, the suffering. And then in the second session of the week, we focus more on, okay, how, how are you managing, you know, the nuts and bolts of your day-to-day life? We'll, 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 we'll spend more time just on, on, on the um, addictive behaviors. And then I'm also a big proponent of adding, adding in outside, um, outside resources like, like AA um, and and harm reduction. So I, I actually do a lot of work with um, with harm reduction. So what does that look like? Harm reduction. Well, harm reduction is a, a kind of. Some would say it's an alternative to AA. I don't think the two are mutually exclusive. I mean, mm-hmm. so I I believe I believe that um, for the people that for so twelve step programs work really really well for the people that they work for. Mm-hmm. Um, that it, but some people can't 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 get on board with it, and mm-hmm. it, you know. So I, I what I do like about 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 twelve step is that um, it provides a community and a sense of belonging and a sense of connectedness 
And what I like about that is, is it, to me, it's really addressing some of what I would call the etiology of addiction. That again, back to failed or absent or toxic relationships and a, and a loss of the sense of identity. And so I think AA really addresses that well. Uh, AA, NA, um, twelve step. Mm-hmm. But for the people that that doesn't work for, um, who maybe aren't you know, really using all that much, but they're using to a point where it is harmful. Um, I use harm reduction. And so harm reduction, really, it's kind of what it sounds like. It's it's simply trying to reduce frequency and amount mm. over, to, over time. So the thought, the, the thinking is to, to, to reduce harm to the body in the long term. Mm-hmm. So more of like weaning yourself off instead of going cold turkey. Yeah, yeah. I mean, these are people who don't, who are pretty adamant that they don't want to com- completely quit altogether. Mm-hmm. Um, so then you have to work with, okay, well, if that's the case, then how are we going to minimize the amount of damage that this is causing to you, to your body, but also to, to your life? That's really interesting. So so if you're treating somebody, you know, if you have a patient who's dealing with this, you know, you're doing the two sessions a week, you're emphasizing harm reduction, you're talking about those traumas and disordered relationships, um, you know, in terms of your practice, what does success look like for that patient? Yeah, um, you know, it's different for everyone. Um, you know, the, the only way I could really answer this question is to sort of think about a particular um, patient and then um, kind of let you know where we are. I mean, so success is, you know, I started working with someone two years ago and this person, um, with within about, you know, half a year, she started to become more increasingly aware of the, the effect that, her use was having on her on her day-to-day life so it, it's it's a slow process of helping first the patient realize the effect that it's having and then um, then I then I would say to make connection to help them make connections to their use and where the pain is mm-hmm. um, because again you know it's 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 a it's a dif- you know I would say addiction is a defense mechanism deployed against uh, the experience of psychological pain. So you really have to follow the pain and uh, the origins of the pain. And so w- once that becomes more in the forefront of the treatment, then the person begins to see why they're using or and how they're using to sort of um, mitigate uh, the, the, their suffering. Wow, that's really powerful. It takes time. Yeah, it is powerful. It it just you know it really takes time. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I'm thinking about. I mean, I'm thinking about myself, of course. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, in my experience, recovery is kind of a learning process, and um, you know, being mm. willing to take in that new information, try different things has really been a game changer for me. Um, I think that mm-hmm. I agree that there's not, there isn't really like a one size fits all, you know? Um, one, one, one of the reasons that I wanted to talk to you and one of the reasons that I'm kind of attracted to your practice is that you, you do talk about that 
personal approach. Um, you know, it is one-on-one. It's not a pill. It's not a prescription. And um, it seems like in terms of recovery, we're kind of moving out of that, like, one-size-fits-all, you know, here's your, you know, take take your protein pill, put your helmet on, you'll be fine on the other side. Um, you know, it, 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 in your opinion, like, is there a reason that the one-size-fits-all model doesn't work for everybody? Well, the one-size-fits-all model, um, I think, is really connected to uh, biological reductionism in in psychological science, that we've forgotten the role of culture and relationships and sociality and history. Um, those things have taken a backseat, I think, because there's a deep-seated wish that there was a magic wand, that there was a pill. Uh, but people are more complicated than that. I mean, again, symptoms don't emerge in a vacuum. Um, but what was your question specifically? Well, specifically, it just, it seems like we're kind of, you know, in terms of learning about what's effective, we're moving, we're almost moving away from the, you know, the the treatment center model um, or the, the AA model where it's like, all you have to do is show up to this one thing. Mm-hmm. You know, you are mm-hmm. seeing people branching out and saying, okay, well, part of this for me is meditation. Part of it is yoga. Part of it is diet. Yeah. Part of it is psychology. Yeah. And you're seeing people, yeah. you know, I, I'm meeting people whose recovery is phenomenally successful who have never set foot in an AA meeting and probably don't need it. Um, you know, mm-hmm. they are they are doing just fine with, you know, making sure that their diet is correct and making sure that they're using proactive, you know, proactive speech and you know, all this different more like a new age approach almost so it's yeah. fun, it's interesting that you know you're using these these um therapy techniques that are you know a century old um or mm-hmm. ho- however old they are and then mm-hmm. and, and those are working perfectly well now so w- what do you think happened in between you know from from freud to now <laughs> did, did we take mm-hmm. a wrong turn mm-hmm. did we miss something <laughs> Yeah, well, I think what 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 happened is, um, you know, so uh, you know, human beings have a really sh- uh, short memory. Uh, so I think we, um, I think we forgot the past. Um, so I think when, um, with the excitement of neuroscience and discoveries about the brain, kind of really came into the forefront, and uh, cognitive behavioral therapy was said to be the new revolution. That. Uh, Everyone, everyone was sort of excited about these very kind of paint by numbers, you know, you know, a sort of paint by numbers approach to to healing people. That you just have to do X, and then you're going to get Y result. Um, and that really missed a lot. You know, it it forgot a lot about the complexities of a person. I mean, there there were you know, there was also a time when. Um, the drug antabuse was deployed as the as the you know treatment for uh, alcohol uh, uh, addiction to alcohol, and that wasn't you know people wouldn't take it because it made them sick. So you know I you know it's hard to it, it it's it's really multifaceted, but I think we I hope that that the pendulum is swinging like you're suggesting back toward a um, a more holistic. Approach because you know life is complicated because people are complicated and so the problems that we experience through living um, have to be approached in a 
in a kind of multi-dimensional fashion. So you you think that that's kind of where we're going? Is this more individual focused treatment? Yeah, I, I hope so. I mean, even 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 the science of psychotherapy, uh, you know, the, the the research the research hardly agrees with with each other because mm-hmm. certain people have certain are in certain camps. Um, but one thing that everybody agrees on is that the re- that the relationship seems to be the most predictive factor in what we might call a cure or a successful treatment. So it's really the idiosyncratic bond between uh, therapist and, and patient that seems to really provide the traction. And, and what, what I think is driving that is, is this careful attention to the person's individual needs and their context. So if that's where a clinician is starting from, then he or she can really tailor the treatment to meet to meet the patient's needs. You know, you know, I'm, I work in the Bay Area, so I, I get people who have all kinds of interests, mm-hmm. and um, and so you know, talking with them about pooling in um, things like meditation and yoga and diet and alternative lifestyle um, is is important. That's really interesting. So to, to go back to your original example, like say that you've got two siblings who grow up in the same house, um, you know, same parents, same, more or less the same environmental conditions. The parents are not beating one and praising the other. They're simply two children. Um, and, and you're telling me that the, the difference, you know, the reason that one becomes a heroin addict and the other goes on and leads a normal productive life is that one of them is going to be having an emotional experience that the other does not. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. Because, because that they're, you know, these are two people who invariably are going to have different, um, relational experiences. Like they're just going to have different people in their lives. They, they have different interests. They're going to be gravitating towards, towards certain things. And so, yeah. And then, yeah, yeah. And you know, it's too easy to say, um, well, it was just somebody, you know, one sibling got the bad gene yeah. and the other one did, didn't. Um, Would it be equally reductive to say something like, well, you're just mad at your dad. Like, one of you is mad at your dad forever, and so you are the one who's going to mm-hmm. have this, like, lifelong existential pain that you keep trying to self-medicate. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it's, I think that's, yeah, I think that's maybe not equally reductive, but also a kind of reductive view. Um, mm-hmm. You have, you have to, you really have to look at the individual's context. Um, That's so interesting. So, so in AA, um, you know, there is like the sort of come into the fold mentality, you know, the 12 steps will work for anybody. Um, mm-hmm. This sort of, this sort of thing, which I kind of agree mm-hmm. with, you know, I think that AA can help anybody just like treatment can help anybody but it's not going to be for everybody mm-hmm. um right. but there's this sort of like what are you a special snowflake mentality and so mm-hmm. from talking to you i'm getting the feeling that maybe i am a special snowflake can you can yes. you confirm this <laughs> yes you are i am i am you are yeah all right yeah well, i'm gonna go tell some old timers yeah. to kiss my ass <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I I think if you if you ask that question to um, 
uh, a geneticist, they would also tell you that you're a special snowflake. I mean, because, you know, I, I, this, it's not my area, but, but you know, there, there is a way in which the combination of things that make you up is a combination that doesn't exist anywhere else. You know, that it's a really unique combination. And, and then if you, when, when, by analogy, you're a combination of experiences um, that don't exist anywhere else. As I talked to Dr. Gatta, I started to see the parallels in my own addiction, my loneliness, family dynamic problems, and horrible self-doubt, all things that I was still dealing with as a sober adult. If addiction was a defense mechanism against my mental pain, it worked for a while, until it didn't. Just as my addiction wasn't the singular solution to my life's problems, physical sobriety wasn't the solution for my addiction. There was more to it, and more to recovery, so I kept searching. Late last year, the Surgeon General released a report on alcohol, drugs, and health called Facing Addiction in America. This groundbreaking statement not only acknowledged the epidemic of drug overdose deaths in the United States, it also identified addiction as a mental illness. Instead of shaming addicts or faulting them for being morally deficient, addicts should be treated as what they are, people with a chronic psychological ailment who need help. Although recovery advocates have made huge strides, there's still a long way to go. Dr. Adi Jaffe, who holds a PhD in psychology and is the executive director of Alternatives Behavioral Health Treatment Center, is speaking out about shame, stigma, and the barriers addicts face when they seek recovery. He says that the problem isn't just between an addict's ears. It's in the culture around them as well. Honestly, I think part of the reason we have such a huge addiction problem is because of our puritanical um, underpinnings, the sort of, you know, the just say no version of our prevention efforts, um, the hypocrisy that happens there, and the inability to therefore deal with the realities on the ground. And so what do I mean by that? I mean, you know, we live in a country where the sex sex education is don't have sex until you're married and I'm joking to some extent but you know abstinence is the main thing that is taught so much so that obviously right some school curriculums are teaching abstinence only mm -hmm. um, and and when it comes to drugs and alcohol we get taught not to use them and then 70% of our friends use them in high school and so it's actually a normative thing for people to use um, you know from a psychological point of view what is normal is, to some extent, what everybody else is doing, right? Mm -hmm. So, if you're a senior in high school, most of your friends have drank. Um, most of your friends have, have consumed alcohol, and a good percentage of them now, and in increasing, are uh, smoking marijuana. So, we still live in a world, though, where outside society tells you that's not okay. So then people end up with a conundrum, right? They um, they are driven because of their social interaction to do something that the overarching society, their parents and their teachers and laws, um, tell them is not okay. And we know that that sort of conflict can create create a lot of shame in people, um, and 
And what people typically try to do when they feel those feelings is run away from them, shy away from them, and and um, in in whatever way that they can. Mm-hmm. Um, I hear what you're saying. Sort. Yeah, it sounds like um, it sounds like you think part of the issue is that you know our culture and you know again our educational system is sort of built with the assumption that no is the default when in fact behaviorally um we're saying yes we're saying yes to sex we're saying yes to drugs and then we have to cope with these pretty severe social um consequences of of doing the things that we wanted to do all along is that what you're saying yeah and what, yeah yeah and but part of the consequences are internal even so um you know, some of the consequences you're talking about are if you get arrested, if you get caught in school for using, and that those are important. But I'm saying there's an internal portion of the process. I'll explain. Um, you know, one of my clients told me that the first time she ever drank, she was at a friend's house. They had planned it. They had all, all the kids planned doing it, so they knew they were doing it. Um, but she wasn't going to tell her mom. Of course and, not. Cause she, you know, because her mom had very negative opinions of drinking because her dad had been an alcoholic and so she wasn't going to tell her mom and she didn't but on the way home she saw her mom walking the dog so she ran away into the these like this little park by their house um, and never told her mom that she drank until her mom found out in college that she was drinking Wow. Um, you know this is a 16 year old right and for a 16-year-old, the messaging was, you have to hide your drinking. And one of the things we know about people who have problematic drinking patterns is they hide their drinking. Yep. And so by supporting these sort of behavioral patterns in people from an early age, because we tell them not to do things that we know they're going to do. I mean, it's, it's insane to send your kid to college and have a, a singular message, which is, um, don't drink in college. Yeah. I'm not saying all kids need to drink in college, but you need to have a much more in-depth conversation with your kid than just sending them in saying, yeah, you need to not drink when you go to college because, you know, 80% of college students drink or so. Mm-hmm. so I think, I think uh, you know, again, to jump in, I think that the message is, you know, do what you want, do what you want, don't get caught, um, do what you want, but don't have consequences. You know, the, the college that I went to, for example, you know, my experience was very similar to yours. I was, you know, elbows deep in a lot of things I shouldn't have been doing. Um, and I concealed it. And I think that I got away with it in part because I was still like borderline functional in a lot of ways. I was still going to class. I was still writing my papers. Um, and my, my college, like many other colleges, had that culture of, you know, study hard, party hard. And so it wasn't uncommon to go to these blackout parties on the weekends and then show up to the library on Monday morning all buttoned up like it never happened. Um, It it created this sort of split personality. And I I see what you mean about that, um, you know, encouraging the development of shame, you know, sort of making up on Monday for what you did the night before. We still live in the sort of 50s era of, you know, you keep, keep things that are going wrong within the family. Mm-hmm. Um, those those things still they build this culture of um, you're always supposed to kind of like you were talking about that Monday post drinking you're always supposed to look on the outside like everything is fine yes and that's true both when you're drinking 
and when you're not drinking, both when you're using and you're not using. So among your friends that are using, even if you have a problem with using, you're not supposed to really speak up so much because we're all supposed to be together. Not, there aren't supposed to be any gaps or weaknesses. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Um, and because parents don't talk to their kids about it because the parents themselves are ashamed they don't know how to do this, kids grow up without any real support in terms of how to cope if somebody talks to them about using or things along that nature. So what we end up with is a, um, a society that's not really prepared to deal with the difficulties, yet, as you said, the messaging is do what you got to do, just don't get in trouble. One thing that both Dr. Gatta and Dr. Jaffe talked about was shame. The stigma and shame of addiction keeps so many addicts from even seeking recovery. 10% or less of us take active steps to seek recovery and get sober. And of that 10%, how many stick with it for long-term recovery? The numbers are not good. And both doctors agreed that taking a two-pronged approach addressing the internal conflict of the addict and the external conflict, that is, the pressure put on us by society to be perfect, could make a huge difference for addicts in who lives and who dies, who gets sober and who stays stuck in active addiction. Dr. Jaffe gave a wonderful TED Talk specifically about shame and stigma and how it creates barriers for people in recovery. There's more to it, he says, than just the way we choose to define addiction. We have the DSM's um, definition of addiction, which is, you know, the chronic harmful use of a substance, um, you know, that, that has these negative social and personal consequences. But, you know, in your experience and your observation, um, what does addict really mean? What does that look like? So, you know, again, the reason I like to stay away from the term is I don't think it matters so much what my specific definition is when I use the term, I can, and I can tell you what, I, what it means to me, um, but, you know, I think what ends up making a difference, um, at least in the, in the conversation, the grand conversation I want to have, is the idea that different people come into treatment with a different set of you know, specific sim symptoms and indicators of a problem with drugs, alcohol, or any compulsive behaviors. Um, what we've done up to now is we've called any collection of, and of symptoms that meets a specific set of criteria based on the DSM-5, let's say, at this point, uh, or the ICD-10 codes, as, um, as addiction. You know, that's not how it's termed in the clinical literature, right, so people are, would now be said to have a substance use disorder of, let's say, the extreme level or whatever, um, or the severe level. And, um, but in everyday language, Americans and people around the world use the term addict or alcoholic to describe that. Um, the problem is there's so much connotation that goes along with it. Uh, there's so much baggage, there's so much tangential information that is provided in that language and you know my specific slant on it 
could be different from somebody else's. And so we're both, if we're both having a conversation about somebody who is an addict, we we end up putting our specific baggage, our specific set of information into that conversation. Um, I just think it's more useful to talk about, let's say, my clients who came in with an opiate problem or clients who came in with an alcohol problem. You know, they, they're struggling with their drinking. That's what brings them in. And, you know, we get to... We get to sort of start at the at a, what I consider at least a more objective initial starting point, rather than speaking at each other about some um, semi-meaningless term. Yeah, I agree. I think that using the word problem implies that there's a solution. You know, you can fix a problem, you can work with a problem, you can treat a disorder, but telling somebody that they're an addict that is a really loaded term, so to speak. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, my my background. Um, you know, I have sort of a mixed AA, you know, self care background. Um, after three years sober, I ended up in the rooms of AA and started um, finally getting an education about uh, drug and alcohol problems. Um, prior to that, I knew nothing beyond you know what they teach you in in health class, <laughs> which was just say no yeah. and you know don't smoke crack. <laughs> I grew up in the DC area during. Um, did you, did you smoke any the, crack? Um, I, I have smoked crack, yes. All right. Um, See, you, you, we don't follow advice very well. We don't. Um, this is, I think, you know, one of the things I learned in AA is, you know, that, that sort of mental twist that, that they talk about, which is, you know, I, I may be listening, but I'm not recording. Um, you know, I, I, I hear information or I hear what the expert says, but I definitely believe that I know better. Um, and so... You know, in, in AA, they talk about humility. They talk about a return to sanity. And I, I am trying to, to kind of understand um, addiction from that perspective, which is why I think that, you know, your, your background is so valuable in this conversation. Um, I, I, didn't, I didn't know what, uh, what recovery meant when I got sober. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, sure. you know, it had to be total abstinence. Um, but I know that that's not true for everybody. You know, you could say, well, you know, you quit, you know, you quit heroin, but you're still smoking. So you're still in an active addiction of one kind or another. And, and so, you know, in, in your opinion, what, what would you say represents healthy recovery for someone with a drug or alcohol problem? Um, what is recovery? You know, I'm actually a pretty big fan of the SAMHSA definition. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, things can always be adjusted, but um, the SAMHSA definition actually doesn't talk about substance use at all, but rather talks about the fact that recovery is a um, has to do with people's actual functioning in life. And so, let me if I can kind of find it. Um, The way they talk about it is a process of change through which individuals improve their health and wellness, live a self-directed life, and strive to reach their full potential. Um, And so, you know, I'm I'm still in recovery, I guess, um, because I'm still striving to reach my full potential. But you know, I was I used to be a a drug user, uh, a heavy drug user, and I I actually I do still identify as an ex-meth addict. Mm-hmm. But my recovery involved me improving my health through stopping my meth use and engaging in exercise and, and just generally taking care of myself better. 
um, living a more self-directed life, you know, and by that I mean less directed by my drug use and the, and the circumstances that brought about, um, and day by day striving for my full potential. And, you know, there are subcomponents to that um, definition for SAMHSA, and some of that is health specific, so managing disease and symptoms. Um, so, for instance, you asked about addiction. I actually like to think of addiction as a syndrome, hmm. not a disease. That's really interesting. And the, re the reason is the medical definition of a syndrome is a collection of symptoms that typically appear together. And I think we, a lot of us can agree that there are symptoms that show up in addicts oftentimes together, right? A lot of addicts have, many addicts have similar uh, symptoms. But under the definition of a syndrome, the etiology, the development, the reason for those symptoms showing up can be totally different. Yeah. And so I like that definition much better. Um, but, you know, having, having uh, positive health and health improvement, having a stable place to live, um, purpose. I'm a big, big supporter of having purpose in our clients' lives. So whether that's in your actual work or if you volunteer to get it done or if you find it in your family, really being able to find um, meaningful participation in society, being part of a community that you feel a part of and that provides you with support and, um, and you know, um, you know, a network of support. And, uh, and that's to me the, that's to me the definition. That's to me the, the thing that we need to understand about recovery. And it can occur with abstinence and it can occur with reductions in substance use. It can occur with alterations of patterns of substance use. It's, you don't have to stop using to be in recovery. By changing the language that we use to describe addiction and addicts, changing our cultural expectations for how people abuse, use, or enjoy substances that alter our brain chemistry, and by changing our approach to addiction, whether it's by treatment or through identification and diagnosis, we can make huge changes and improvements for people who do suffer from this mental illness. This is Claire Foster. Thanks for listening to Addiction Unscripted. See you next time.